pray. That song, O Father, that we just sang sounds like an old revival hymn, but the truths in those verses are so precious to us. This is Reformation doctrine. This is justification by faith alone and Christ alone by grace alone. And so we praise you, Father. We ask you, Father, to unpack these things for us a little more this morning, make them clear. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would would move in our midst, move in our very being to grant us not only understanding, but the ability to believe and receive these truths and apply them to our hearts. And so change us by it, O Father, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. We have been working on the doctrines of the Reformations. There are five of them, and uh, we have looked at the doctrine of faith alone and the doctrine of Christ alone, and today we want to touch on uh, salvation or justification by grace alone, and toward the end, we will touch on the one at the end, the last of the five, that, that is for the glory of God alone. And so I would invite you with me to turn in your Bible to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. And yes, this is the text that we've been looking at for the last three weeks. In chapter 3 of Romans, Paul has revealed to us the nature of man's status before God apart from Christ. Yes, he was created to glorify God. He was to image forth the glory of God. But here's the thing. All have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. This fall, as it is called, however, that man experienced was not, was not an accidental misstep. And by that I mean, to say that man falls short of the glory of God may seem to communicate that man was trying his best to attain the kind of life that glorifies God, but he just couldn't quite get there. The target was just too far out of reach. Regardless of his effort, though he try and try and try, he just couldn't reach the glory of God. But that's not how Paul presents it. You have to read everything in its context. This is chapter 3, but in chapter 1, he explains it. Back in chapter 1 of Romans, and you can turn the page to the left and look at verse 23, Paul explains that far from accidentally falling short of the glory of God, man has actively suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. He has, in sin, willful unrighteousness suppressed the truth about God. We are his creation. He made us to be an expression of his infinite delight and eternal joy. He formed us as a representation of himself, sharing with us certain attributes of his that are now, at least in part, our own. For example, how is it that you can love anyone else outside of yourself? It is because God is love. If there is any love in the world, it is because God exists. How do we explain joy? I can experience the joy of holiness 
and righteousness in God's presence because God is holy. I can create things. Usually what I create isn't very creative, but God has given man the capacity to create. Why? Because he is the creator. And all of that, everything that he has made, of all that he has made, man is by far most like God. Yes, you may see certain things in the animal kingdom that tell you things about God, but man is most like God. He even designed into the very fabric of our being an irresistible urge for worship so that we can have fellowship with him. And yet we take that worship and we send it off in the wrong directions. The biggest worship service, I've often said, the biggest worship service that will take place today will be over in the football stadium in Arlington. I don't even know if they're playing, but if they are playing, it'll be the biggest worship service of this day. People are hardwired to worship something. And because we have actively suppressed the truth about God, we will find something to worship. Nevertheless, at the first opportunity, after God created man, he rebelled. He believed Satan's lie that God was holding out on him some good thing that he needed to be happy and whole. He began suppressing the truth about God's goodness his holiness, his kindness, his grace. He ran from God and hid from God. And so deep were the effects of that rebellion that man's very nature became twisted and stained, guaranteeing that all of his children and ours would be naturally inclined to share in that rebellion. Go into any home where there's a two-year-old or a three-year-old. That has been my home this week with my grandbabies here and love them and adore them. And they are some of the, the sweetest human beings to me in, in this world. And yet sin reigns in them. Not as much as in other people's kids, but... <laughs> But here's the problem. So stained were we that even at birth, we have a natural bent toward rebellion. Unless God did something miraculous, man would be forever lost. But what could be done? This is a really big problem. What could be done? God made it clear that his holiness demands a righteous penalty for sin. For the wages of sin is death. How can it be otherwise? I mean, how could anything sinful, even, even something of the highest order in God's creation, namely man, how could he stand in the presence of a holy God and not be consumed? Answer, he cannot. He cannot. But what alternative is there? God's law cannot save us. This is how Paul argues it. Chapter 3, verse 20. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, not the forgiveness of sin. The knowledge of sin. How do you know you are a sinner? Because God said, thou shalt not. And even if you don't know, 
the Ten Commandments, and it's astounding how far our culture has drifted. Les Trammell and I were yesterday talking about the reality that as you share the gospel, especially with young people, most of them these days have never heard of John 3.16. They probably have heard of Jesus, but they don't have a clue what the Ten Commandments are. You, can, you can't even start there with them. And so what can man do if keeping the law doesn't save you? If law-keeping cannot save a person from punishment his sin deserves and God's holiness demands, how can the unrighteous, that's you and me, how can we be saved? It's a question that demands an answer from everyone. And I know that most of you know the answer, but in Reformation's time, Reformation times, they didn't know the answer. That's why it was called the Dark Agents. The gospel was completely overwhelmed by the traditions of men. And so people lived in the dark, even though there were educated men who could lay forth the word of God if they chose to, even then they were forbidden to do it in the language of the people. And so you would go to church, imagine coming to church and sitting here and listening to me preach in Latin. How many of you can understand Latin when it's spoken. Um, probably none of us. You pick up a word here and there. But you really couldn't be instructed by it. And this is the way it was for hundreds and hundreds of years. The gospel had fallen into the darkness, had been pushed and buried by the traditions of men. The question then is, how... How can a man who is sinful be justified in God's sight? Now, to make this really practical, I want you just for a second, just for a moment, to think about your own rebellion against God. Don't think about the person who's not here right now. Think about your own rebellion against God. Think of your anger, your pride. Think about your own self-righteousness. Consider how you, like our first parents, Adam and Eve, have run from God in shame rather than running to God for mercy. Think of your past immorality, your unrighteousness. Consider the idolatrous worship of your heart, those secret sins that no one else knows about, but they gnaw at you, they gnaw at your soul in the quiet moments when you're alone, And you know it's there. You know it's true. But you have hidden them for so long. They've just become a part of who you are. But oh, how you wish you could be rid of them. And then consider this. Is not God just to condemn? Is not God just to condemn what you yourself know is contemptible and wicked in your own heart? It is 10,000 times worse in the heart of God. He sees it for what it really is. How can the unrighteous, the ungodly be saved? How can the ungodly be reconciled to a holy God? How can the condemned be justified? That's the question that Paul is wrestling with. Beginning with the second half of Romans chapter 3, Paul explains God's marvelous 
plan. Look with me briefly at Romans 3, 21 through 28. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 28. And just follow along with me as I read. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold, says the Apostle Paul, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is what Paul is arguing. What is he saying? Well, As we have learned over the past couple of weeks, Paul teaches us here that no one can be justified. No one will ever be declared righteous. No sinner will be declared an unsinner by law keeping. You cannot keep the law well enough or long enough. It doesn't matter because you've already broken it. And as James tells us, the one who breaks the law at any point has broken the whole law. You can't earn back what has been lost by trying really hard to obey God's word. It's too late. You've committed the crime, and justice demands satisfaction. Nevertheless, God is not willing that sinners should perish. It is in the heart of God that sinners be saved. And frankly, as I was working through this this week, it occurred to me that one of the most precious Verses in the Bible is, in in my thinking anyway, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Keep your finger here in Romans and turn with me to Ephesians 4 and then, Ephesians 2, and then keep your finger there because we're going to go back and forth a little bit. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, he describes the predicament that sinners are in. Notice what he says, you are dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. We've given ourselves over to the passions and desires of the flesh and are by nature deserving wrath. We are children of wrath. This is a frightening picture of humanity, isn't it? This is our rebellion against a good and holy God. This is frightening. It's a frightening picture of humanity. It's a hopeless scenario. And then, just as Paul gets to the darkest part of this spirit-inspired assessment of man's hopeless condition, without warning, he says two of the most magnificent words any sinful human being can ever hear. But God. 
You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were hopelessly living for the pleasures of this world, following the devil himself, though you may not have known it. Your condition was absolutely hopeless, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, what did he do? He did something that we can hardly even imagine. He sent his only son to stand in our place and bear the crushing wrath that we deserve. This is the substitutionary atonement. This is God putting Jesus, his son, in our place. Puritan pastor John Flavel attempts to help us feel the weight and the glory of this what God did for sinners, when he wrote what has become known as the Father's Bargain. I have edited the language only slightly to help us help it become uh, more easily understood. This is, as he writes it, it is a back and forth between the Father and the Son. The Father begins. He says, my son, here is a company of poor miserable souls that that have utterly undone themselves and now, low, now lie open before my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or it will satisfy itself in their eternal ruin. What shall be done for these souls? The son replies, O oh, my father, Such is my love too and pity for them that rather than that they should perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all their bills that I may see what they owe to thee. That I may see what they owe to thee. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after reckoning with them. At my hand you shall require them. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. The father responds, but my son, if you undertake this for them, you must reckon to pay the very last might. Expect no mercy. If I spare them, I will not spare you. The son responds, Content, father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it, and though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish me of all of my riches, empty all of my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. This is what Paul is describing for us. And he does it again and again and again, almost in every book he writes. Describing it for us here in Romans chapter 3, no amount of law keeping, no amount of sorrow for sin, no amount of confession, no amount of penance could ever reconcile us to God. Whatever righteousness you think you have before God needs to be repented of because it is not righteousness in God's sight. How then can sinners be justified in God's sight? Answer, only through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1776, Augustus Toplady 
published in a hymnal the following lyrics of that old hymn that we, we sang just as I was coming up here. So perfect for this doctrine. Here's what we sang. See if you can remember. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill your law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. James Montgomery Boyce used to say, all the other doctrines of the Reformation find their meaning in Jesus Christ and him crucified. He is the centerpiece. The cross is the centerpiece. And so we've learned from the Apostle Paul that justification that God offers the ungodly comes to us by faith alone, in Christ alone. But faith alone and Christ alone are not the only essential threads in this great salvation described in Romans 3. And the reason I keep coming back to the same passage week after week You heard that story about W.A. Criswell, who one day preached the same sermon three, four times, and one of his deacons came to him and said, Pastor, why do you, when are you going to stop preaching that sermon? And he said, as soon as you start living it. (laughs) Here's Paul, you read his works, and he goes back to this again and again, but this is the central, this is really the primary text for us. It's the signature text for these doctrines. And Paul has braided together these three strands of divine truth into one passage. The first strand is the doctrine of faith alone. The second strand is the doctrine of Christ alone. And the third strand is the doctrine of grace alone. If you are to be justified, if you are to be saved, it will be by grace alone. And so back to Romans 3, verses 23 and 24. The biblical truth and the grace of God towards sinners is one of the most beloved teachings in the church that we have ever embraced. We sang it, what, we sang about it, what, three times this morning? We sang about, I mean, the whole singing time last, last week was all about the grace of God. Not sure we even duplicated a song this week. We could probably go for another month of Sundays and only sing songs written about the grace of God and not exhaust the hymnody on the issue. Christians have always loved the grace of God in the gospel. Of all the words that Paul uses in his gospel language, besides the name of Jesus Christ himself, grace is the sweetest to us because it is the foundation of everything else. It is because of grace that Jesus has come. It is because of grace that he died as a propitiation for our sins. It is because of grace that the gospel is preached around the world and almost every Sunday here. It is because of grace that faith is born in our hearts. Indeed, everything that we have from God comes to us Not because we earn it, but because the eternal giver is constantly giving. We call that grace. We love not only thinking about grace, we love not only talking about grace, 
grace not only fills our prayers, but it is also true of the saints that we can hardly keep from singing about grace. We love to sing about grace in the gospel. Sinclair Ferguson says, grace is not something you can be content merely to speak about. It is something that we must sing about. It is, as another old song declares, grace that is greater than all of our sin. Where did the hymn writer get that? From Romans. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. So much so that Paul has to say, has to raise the question, are we saying then that we should sin so that grace would increase all the more? And he has to explain, no, 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 never, let it never be, mega noita. Do you not know that the one who sins tends to become a slave of sin? Nevertheless, grace really is that amazing, that overpowering to the the sin that we have, and that it's just penalty. What is grace? We could define it as unmerited favor, right? Unearned favor from God. God looks at us with favor, not because of what we've done. It's completely unmerited, so we call it unmerited favor. Somebody very creatively, because God is creative, uh, took the word grace and turned it into a, to an acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense. Like that one? This is grace. God's riches for us at the expense of Christ. The point there is we don't earn it. We can't buy it. This is the good news in the face of the really, really bad news. And because, by the way, the bad news is really, really bad, the good news is glorious. And the news, that, the news is that the ground of God's justification of the ungodly is not law-keeping. Rather, the ground for our justification is God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul says it in verses 23 and 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is through Jesus Christ. One thing that's worthy of note here is that God the Father, it is God the Father whose grace is being given. It is God the Father who is being gracious to sinners. Many people, even good Christians, have the mistaken idea that God didn't start loving you until Christ died for you. Can I just correct that with one phrase? Christ died for you because God loved you. Witness, for example, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 5, when did God love us with his great love? Even when we were dead in our transgressions. On a historical reformation note, have you ever wondered why when in that thunderstorm, 
Luther was nearly struck by lightning, and he cried out. If you've been going to Sunday school, you, you know what he cried out, right? Or if you came to Reformation celebration yesterday, you may have heard it there. Lightning strikes. He thinks it's a bolt of God's judgment, and he cries out, Save me, Saint Anne. I'll become a monk. It's a bargain with Saint Anne. Now, here's a question. Why didn't he cry out? Oh, God of mercy, save me. I'll become a monk. Or why didn't he cry out, Jesus, save me. I'll become a monk. I mean, he still would be trying to pay for it, but at least he's directing his prayer to the right object, the right person. Well, there's a theological reason why he called out to St. Anne. Roman Catholic Church gives its followers the distinct impression that the Father is so transcendent, so other, so angry with sinners that he is always and forever unapproachable. You can never go to the Father. Jesus, on the other hand, is not quite as remote as the Father, but as a judge, he too is hard and unapproachable. So, Don't dare attempt to approach Jesus directly. He won't give you an audience. But here's the thing. If you want to communicate something or ask for something from Jesus, the mediator between God and man, um, you can pray to Mary because everyone knows that while a person may resist you, Nobody can resist the pleadings of their mother. Pray to Mary. And Mary will mediate for you to Jesus. And then Jesus, maybe, will mediate for you to the Father. At the time, as the time went on, Mary, best I can understand the the history here, Mary kept getting elevated, 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 elevated. She became less and less approachable herself. So now if you want to pray to Mary to speak to Jesus, who will speak to the Father on your behalf, don't approach Mary. She is now unapproachable. But there is someone that Mary will listen to. Surely, if a mother won't listen, then the grandmother will listen. Mary's mother Mary's mother can speak to Mary on your behalf. And the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church says, Mary's mother was named Anne, hence Saint Anne. This, beloved, is a blasphemous teaching. It's a blasphemous teaching. But it is what every good Catholic believed. The Bible, however, doesn't portray God the Father as angry and a loveless deity. The fact is, it was the great love and mercy of the Father towards sinners that initiated the whole plan of salvation to begin with. Now, back to Romans chapter 3. If you look carefully at Paul's word choices here, you might say that Paul is being a little bit redundant because the words grace, you see that? And free gift, look at verse 24, and are justified by grace as a gift. Um, That comes across as redundant. To say 
to say that, to speak of it in terms of grace as a gift is redundant. It's like saying it is a grace grace or it is a gift gift because the very meaning of grace is to give. It is God giving. And so Paul does this. He does it repeatedly. Paul had good precedent for this redundancy because John the Apostle, when speaking about Jesus, he said this, of his, that is, of Jesus' fullness, we have all received, and what? Grace upon grace upon grace. Paul himself picks up the theme of grace again in chapter 5. Just turn one page to the right. Paul's still arguing the same thing here, but here he is in chapter 5. And since our emphasis is on grace, I want you to see Paul's emphasis on grace. Let's begin with verse 15. But the free gift, this is Romans 5, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for the many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift follows many tresp- uh, following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift, notice, the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the one word that he repeats again and again? Grace upon grace upon grace. And what is grace? Grace is God freely giving. It is a free gift. It comes to you with nothing attached. It is a free gift. And what is that free gift? Righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so once again, he speaks of the free gift, verse 15, the grace of God and the free gift by grace. Again, he calls it the free gift in verse 16 and the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness in verse 17. When it comes to salvation, this is important. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to justification, when it comes to righteousness, The essential characteristic of grace is its freeness. It is free. It has to be free. 
It must be given freely and accepted without payment or merit. Otherwise, it is not grace. Paul will say this explicitly in chapter 11, verse 6. He says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would what? No longer be grace. If you're working for it, if you're earning it, it's not grace. It's a deal. It's a bargain. It's payment. As Americans, most of our interaction with other people is based not on grace, but on commerce. We understand buying and selling. We understand trading and earning. We understand tipping a waiter for his attentive service. And we think that we can do that with God. We want to smuggle in our contribution under the radar. But receiving something of value for free, receiving something that is this valuable and this free makes us uncomfortable. If a person behind you in the grocery line sees you fumbling in your wallet for that last couple of dollars you didn't expect to pay, and they pull out a wad of cash and they say, hey, let me, let me pay your bill for you. That would make you rather uncomfortable. You'd be embarrassed. You'd tell that person matter-of-factly, thank you very much, but no, I can handle this on my own. If you purchase a house, it feels exciting and wonderful, especially if it's your first house. But if someone offers to give you their house for free, that'll make you uncomfortable. It'll make you feel awkward at the least. We don't like to receive something without payment, or at least without making a fair bargain. There's something inside all of us that chafes at the thought of being dependent upon someone else for what we need. We want to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We want to pay our own way through the world. We want to be the quintessential self-made man or woman, as the case may be. The idea of having to depend upon someone else for what we need is repulsive. It's humbling. It's odious. It's even demeaning. It announces to the world that we are insufficient. We are insufficient to meet our own needs. Nobody likes to feel insufficient. And so for all of our singing about grace, all of our preaching about grace, and rejoicing in grace, when understood rightly, the offer of this grace is something that may make a person feel very uncomfortable. Why do you think they don't believe it? This isn't the kind of math that we're used to, that we like. We want to help. We want to pay our part. We want to carry our own load. Thank you very much. And this becomes most apparent, I think, as soon as we begin talking about certain passages that describe the grace of God in justification, salvation, in these terms, Ephesians 1.4. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's grace. 
Ephesians 1, 6, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. That's grace. Ephesians 1, 11, he predestined us according to the purposes of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. What's he saying? God does this. God does this. You don't pay for it. You can't pay for it. He won't accept your payment for it. It must be a gift. It must be free. You must receive it as free. And some of you right now are thinking, it just makes me uncomfortable. I know grace is supposed to be wonderful. Why does it bother me? Answer, pride. You love your own contribution more than you love Christ. The way of salvation isn't like trying harder or resolving to do better. That doesn't factor into the equation. It is excluded. It is excluded. Grace is not merely a warm, sentimental disposition of God whereby he chooses to be nice to us. No. The grace of God is a powerful thing. In the prophet Ezekiel's vocabulary, it it is what removes from us the dead heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. What's the imagery there? You are dead in your transgressions and sins. You are dead to God. Your heart doesn't beat for God. Your heart is a stone to God. And grace comes alone and removes that heart. You get a spiritual heart transplant. And your first breath when you wake up from that surgery is... I believe. It is God's work. The way of salvation isn't like trying harder. It's more like surrender. It's more like the declaration of another verse in that same hymn that we didn't sing this morning. Uh, We skipped it and went to the fourth. But let me tell you what was in the third. Here the hymn writer writes this. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. This was written by a man who understands the freeness the necessity of the freeness of the gospel of Christ. Coming to Jesus for salvation isn't some kind of evangelical bargain wherein God agrees to do something for you if you will do something for him. No, it's a complete abandonment of your own righteousness, your own ability, your own independence, your own self-sufficiency. And any hope that you can earn God's favor, you abandon that. It is merely lifting up your empty hands of faith, believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ for you, for you. You could never have done it for you, but he did it for you. 
And when you do that, when you come to Christ like that, when you come saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, that's all I can say. Just God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I have nothing to contribute to this except my sin. When you come to him like that, you will soon realize that even the faith that you had to do that was a gift. Here's how Paul says it back in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Many of you have this memorized. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. What's he referring to? What is this gift of God? Well, notice how he's worded. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, what does that point back to? The immediate antecedent is faith. And it's more than that. It's all aspects of salvation. But it is not less than faith. It is more than faith. It is not less than faith. We're talking about the essence of the gift of God. It is not only righteousness. It is the faith by which you lift your empty hands and say, Lord, I have nothing to offer you. Will you receive me? Even that is a gift. And we see that not only here, but we see that in the Apostle Peter, when in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he addresses his letter to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Peter knew. It took a long time for Peter to learn it. But Peter eventually realized, even my faith is a gift. He is the giver. God is the giver of life and breath and all things. You may ask, why? Why did he set it up like this? Why didn't he let me play a part? I want to play a part. Why did he do it like this? Answer. God designed justification like this. And perhaps one practical reason is that there is no efficacy in anything that we do. Nothing we could contribute could ever help our predicament. But more importantly, the answer is this. Salvation is by grace alone so that it will be for the glory of God alone. Salvation must be by Christ alone, by faith alone, so that it will be by grace, for the glory of God alone. And beloved, I know, I know, some of you have doubted your salvation for years, and you think to yourself, did I believe enough? Was I sincere enough? Can I just prod you to consider this, that when you think that way, your eyes are on the wrong object, you're looking at yourself, and you are, perhaps unintentionally, trying to smuggle in your own contribution to the salvation equation, and you have none. You have none. Except your sin, which doesn't help. Oh, my friend, do you see the free offer of justifying grace which God lays before you today? It is free. Come to the water and drink freely 
of the rivers of God's delight. Come to him who is the fountain of living water and satisfy your thirsty soul. Come to me, all of you who are weary and are so tired of carrying around the confusion of this heavy load. Come to him and receive the gift freely. God will not be more glorified if you can figure out how to contribute something. He is less glorified but he will be greatly glorified if you just come and say, Lord, naked I come to you for dress. Lord, I can contribute nothing. You say, how much faith do I need? About a mustard seed. Not much, but the object of it must be Christ. And if the object of your faith is Jesus Christ and him alone, you believe that because God was gracious to you. Even that is a gift. It is a gift from first to last so that it will always be for the glory of God alone. That is the fifth doctrine of the the, uh, (laughs) Reformation. Next week, we'll look at sola scriptura, scriptures alone. But I just want to say to you once again, those of you, and I know there are some, I've talked with you, who are here, and you, you still don't get it. You still haven't embraced the free gift that God has offered to you. Do you understand? Today, has God give you, given you the capacity to understand If you want this, this great salvation that God provides, stop trying to smuggle in your works, your own righteousness, your own good intentions, your your own belief even into the equation. Rather, the Apostle Paul would say to you very simply, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for these precious truths. And though I confess I communicate them poorly, I ask, Father, that your spirit would give it life in the hearts of your people and in the hearts of those who have yet to embrace it, to believe it, to throw themselves entirely upon the mercy and goodness of God. May by your grace they do that today. For we pray it in the name of our Savior Jesus.